What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Clee Talk presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name is Bob. I'm your host. I'm hanging out talking Cleveland sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, how are you holding up, man? Better than last week. Uh, I got. I've had a yeah. headache all day today, but not because of what happened last week. Uh, just, I don't know. Maybe it's because we're just so close to this election or something, and I'm just sick of it. But we're not talking politics. I'm just theorizing yeah. enough <laughs> depression in this podcast to bring that into the mix as well. Yeah, we definitely won't get political, though. Uh, some might argue that talking Cubs or talking Indians can get quite political. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, man, it was it was a rough week last week. I'm kind of glad that. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not glad for, for the Indians to lose game seven. It happened on a Wednesday, giving you and I plenty of time to kind of come to terms with, with what happened. Uh, cause if we were going to record the day after them losing the world series, I, I, uh, you guys would be thinking I, I'm in a really dark place because it, it was rough the, the, the end of that week. Um, especially how late that game went. And I know you were you were down there. I'm sure you went to bed a lot later than I did. But three a.m. Maybe exhausted. <laughs> yeah, three a.m. Yeah, the combination of being exhausted and depressed was not good uh, for for my work life. <laughs> the end of that week. Oh, I was angry. Um, yeah, it was rough. Listeners would have gotten their first taste of angry, Chris, if we had uh, recorded on Thursday. It, it, it would not have been pretty. iTunes yeah. may have pulled us from the clean category let's just say that yeah the explicit box would have gotten checked on this one all right well i mean chris 3-1 lead uh indians were up they were up three to two last time we recorded a podcast did the indians choke how can you not say yes i I mean i'm sorry you know i look I, i understand you know on facebook a lot of my friends were saying great job they were undermatched overmatched all that fun stuff but they went up 3-1. I mean, they had three chances to close it out, one of which had their best pitcher, arguably the best pitcher of the postseason, on the mound. Um, yeah, you can't say they didn't choke. I mean, I, I, there's no way to sugarcoat that. I, I'm sorry. Like, I understand the Indians, their run, all that they overcame to get to where they were. I'm not saying to put a bad damper on that. But blowing a three-one lead certainly does, and I, I, I just if you gotta win one out of three, and you didn't, I, I how can you classify it any other way? I, I think the the long and the short of it is, yeah, they did choke. Yeah, I I think they choked as well. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think they choked away game seven because when you get to game seven, especially the Indians running on fumes for for what has felt like months. Uh, yeah, you, know, you just have to tip your hat to to a, a much a more balanced, a more deep team in the Cubs. What they choked away was a three two loss in, in Game Five, and uh, you know they they essentially just dismissed Game Six. I mean that that blowout, the way they the way uh, the Cubs went up so quickly with that error in the outfield, and then a grand slam uh, by Addison Russell of all people. I mean th- that is what really bothers me. Now, you know, the lingering memories uh, of this World Series are, are that Game 7, which in and of itself was an uh, an epic Game 7. I mean, just 
in terms of my heart rate and, and watching that game, it was fantastic and, and very stressful. And, you know, I'm sure everyone that watched that game was entertained for sure. But where the, where the Indians choked what were those two previous games where the pressure was off, where the opportunities were there and, and they just didn't capitalize. Um, you know, that's a big ask of anyone to, to start three games in the World Series. Corey Kluber certainly showed uh, signs of being able to do that. Um, but he, I mean, he left it all out there and, and I, I can't put a lot of blame on him. I mean, without him, we wouldn't be in this position. Uh, he already pitched in two wins previously in, in the world series. It, it, I I'm really bothered that the Indians weren't able to win, uh, in five games or in six games, really. Me too. Um, and since you mentioned Kluber, we should probably talk to him. Uh, talk about him and Andrew Miller's game seven. Uh, they both struggled. I mean, they gave up six runs combined. Those are your two best pitchers, your best starter, your best reliever. Oddly enough, you know, everyone when Andrew Miller came over was like, "Oh, good thing Shaky Cody Allen doesn't have to pitch anymore." Shaky Cody Allen was locked down games one through seven the entire World Series. Andrew Miller, the last two games, showed signs of, you know, cracks in the armor. And, you know, that's the most frustrating part, is that the Indians had their two best pitchers out there. And, yeah, you can't say the rest didn't play a factor because Corey Kluber didn't record a single strikeout, which is the first time that has ever happened. He had a run of eight straight fly ball outs, even though they were all retired batters. He was not keeping the ball on the ground. Flirting with danger and and the very first batter, home run. I mean that's like the absolute worst way to start off the game seven. So yeah, yeah I mean look, I, I'm not going to say that this was a mistake because we talked about it when it was announced Kluber was going to start games one, four, and seven. We thought it was a good idea, but in hindsight, the side effect of that was that now Bauer and Tomlin both have to start on short rest. So you have four straight starts on short rest. In hindsight, should Terry Francona have pitched someone else in game four to then have a full-rested Kluber and a full-rested Tomlin in the back pocket as opposed to everyone on short rest? Because clearly Tomlin's worst game was game six as well. That was his first on short rest. Clearly the short rest affected the Indians in game six and seven. Yeah, uh, you know, game six, man, it, that fly ball, if they if they catch that ball, it's a completely different game. Do we even get to that bases loaded situation, that grand slam? I, 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 I'm, I no, I, I, I'm not going to second-guess Terry Francona in this situation. Uh, Bauer pitched really well in that game five, uh, gave up three runs, but, I mean, it's Trevor Bauer. Uh, that's I thought that was good for, for his outing. Uh, Kluber... Uh, clearly was wearing down at the end, but you, you, there's the alternative Ryan Merritt, Mike Clevenger. I I would rather take these guys on short rest than than throwing that out in in game four. And, and you you know, there's no guarantee that the Indians, that it plays out the way it played out in in that situation. Are you even in command of a three, one lead uh, at that point? So I'm not going to second, second guess and say that they should have started somebody on game four. Um, No, I, I, I think Francona knew what he had, had the guys that he trusted and, uh, you know, put the ball in their hands, which I think is what he was supposed to do, what what the team was supposed to do. Well, like I said, I mean, I'm not going to criticize the decision I thought was a good one 
when it was made. I think that would be hypocritical of me. Um, but you, you got to wonder if, because it's not necessarily about game four. I, and I, I totally agree it wouldn't have played out the same. But if you start meriting game four and, and say you lose and it's a 2-2 series, you now have a full-rested Kluber in game five. Given the way he pitched in game four, I feel confident the Indians take a 3-2 lead. And now you have a full-rested Bauer and Tomlin coming back home as opposed to a short-rested Tomlin. And I think that may have made a difference. I, I Again, I'm not saying it was the bad decision because you're using the benefit of hindsight here. And I'll say it again. I'm not going to you know, hang Terry Francona for a decision I approved of. I thought it was a good decision. But you know, seeing how Kluber couldn't handle that third start, uh, it, it ultimately you know, played a factor. Yeah. I I can see that. Um, I'm more concerned about David Ross hitting a home run off of Andrew Miller. <laughs> I mean, there I don't know. I, I can't really place any blame on that starting pitching staff given what they went through and the decisions that Francona made, which have all have been great uh, really up until the end of that World Series. Um, on the flip side, though, I mean, Joe Madden uh, had his chance to prove that he was a good manager, too. When, when the Cubs got some leads in, in those late games in, in the World Series and clearly was uh, wanted Aroldis Chapman to be what Andrew Miller was for the Indians, uh, pitching long uh, closeout games in, in Game 5, Game 6, Game 7. Uh, particularly concerning, though, was that he went to Chapman and stuck with Chapman in that Game 6, and everyone collectively was kind of scratching their heads. Why was Chapman in there? Uh, when it was a seven-run lead at, at the end of the game. Chris, do you, do you think that was a huge blunder by Joe Madden? Huge blunder. I, I don't even know why he came in for 20 pitches in game six. It was clear the Indians were down and out that game. Uh, that that was easily the most depressing game of the series. Uh, the Indians just didn't have it that night for whatever reason. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, you saw it. that The, the Indians rallied in that eighth. And, you know, when we say the rest played a factor for the Indians, guys clearly played a factor for Chapman, too. Had his, one of his worst innings of the postseason. Rajay Davis gets a three-run shot, and all of a sudden that game goes from ho-hum to a classic. Now, um, yeah, so, so I certainly think that was a big blunder to bring uh, Chapman in for, for any amount of time in Game 6. I just don't, I just don't see why he did it. Yeah, I mean, in a World Series, you have a five-run lead, which then ballooned up to seven-run lead late in the game. You have to have more than one guy in your bullpen that you can trust. I, I understand you want to get the wins, but um, considering that uh, you're primed in a very comfortable position in that game to set up a Game 7 where you want Chapman to go multiple innings and close out that game, there has to be somebody else in, in that bullpen that, that can get multiple outs from you, get... Uh, and, and and give Chapman some rest for that game seven. I thought that was a huge mistake. And like you said, definitely clearly bit them, uh, almost bit them for, uh, in a huge way in, in that game seven. Um, particularly though, I mean, so Rajay Davis hits that two run home run. Uh, crowd goes wild. Chris, you were there. That had to be insane. Uh, ties it all up. Top of the ninth though, the Cubs in a position to score. Jason Hayward on third base. Javier Baez gets the bunt with a 3-2 count. Chris, what was up with that? Still trying to figure that out. I'm still trying to figure that out if it was a designed bunt or if he freelanced that call because the writer I was with in the press box noticed that the 
the guy on third was not really running. So I, I'm not sure. The reporting said it was a called play. I'm going to trust them. But my eyes say that it, it could have been a freelance decision because I, I didn't really see the runner go. And if you're going to run that play, that, that squeeze play, you better be booking it when that bunt's down. Because even if the bunt goes foul, dead ball, he right. goes back to third. So uh, first off, no matter who called it, it was the dumbest play ever. I mean, I cannot believe that that was even considered. 3-2 count, runner on third. There's too much at stake to to run that play in that situation. Uh, Granted, it probably would have caught the Indians off guard had it been successful because nobody was expecting it. But the risk does not – I mean, the risk far outweighs the reward – and as you see, it just basically handed the Indians an out. And now, you, you know, instead of having the, the the extra out to work with, you know, you got you to press a little bit more to get that run home. So, yeah, huge mistake. Yeah, I mean, Javier Reyes, who homered in that game, I understand he had a, a relatively poor World Series, but you know, he's starting in that lineup. You have to expect that he can either, A, put the ball in play in the infield uh, by swinging it where a speedy Jason Hayward could score or get the ball into the outfield where Hayward could score because that was with all with one out. Um, and then he, he bunts, uh, I guess, which is technically a strikeout, um, to give it two outs and then, you know, sacrifices are off and, and Dexter Fowler next man up, uh, just grounds out. So, um, yeah, very, 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 uh, head scratching. So that begs the question. I mean, we saw Terry Francona walking a very fine tightrope, a very small margin of error. Uh, Joe Madden with, uh, his all-star Cubs had a little bit more room to wiggle around and make moves like you know, benching $21 million man, Jason Hayward for three games. Um, Chris, do, do, are, do you consider Joe Madden on, on Terry Francona's level as one of the best managers in this game? It's tough. Cause in the aftermath, I said no, but at the same time, the, the difference between genius and insanity is such a fine line. If that bunt is successful, I mean, we're, we're hailing him as a genius. You know, I mean, we're saying who has the gumption to call that on a 3-2 count. So it is a fine line. I think overall he's one of the ten, easily 10 best, probably five best managers in the game. Uh, if, if, if you force me to rank him, I don't know if he'd be in the top three. I don't know if he's up there. But he's certainly a fine manager. And with time to get more perspective um, – Ultimately, his team did win the World Series. And let's not just sit here and say Terry Francona was perfect because anytime you lose a 3-1 lead, there were managerial decisions that played into that. Now, again, we talked about one of them, bringing guys back on short rest. I'm not questioning the decision, but it did not work. And, and I, I, I mean, I understand the starters pitched well through those five games, but game six and seven, the starters, Josh Tomlin and Corey Kluber, did not have it, and Andrew Miller was running on fumes. So, so those are decisions that fall on Terry Francona's lap. He chose to work them to the brink, and it blew up in his face. Um, but there was a bigger decision that I think uh, Terry Francona – made that that was more impactful towards that game we'll get to that in a minute but but Bob do you do you agree do you think Madden is one of the game's top managers yeah I do I mean there are very few times where uh, a manager's actual game time decisions play make a huge impact in the game Joe Madden uh, had made two of them in in those late world series games with Chapman and with the Baez bunt but in terms of a, a manager 
I mean, he, he is one of the best. Uh, the, what he did with the Rays uh, is fantastic. Not everyone could do that. And clearly he's getting the most out of those young players in the Cubs. Um, so, yeah, factoring that in, uh, he almost cost the Cubs a World Series with, with some of those moves at, at the end of the game. But like you said, he won it. And, and with the with the track record, I think he is, you know, has to be a top five manager at this point and, and has to be in the conversation as as the best manager in the game. Though I do think Terry Francona was afforded more opportunities to manage and, and did outmanage Joe Madden in the World Series. But you're alluding to uh, Terry Francona's probably most questionable call, and that was so the Indians tie the game late in Game Seven, as everyone knows. It goes into extra innings. We don't get to play that tenth inning for 17 minutes because of a rain delay. Brian Shaw pitched that ninth inning. Uh, Terry Francona makes the decision to bring him back out for that 10th. And we all know what happens. Bases get loaded. Two runs get scored by the Cubs. Uh, Chris, good move to bring Brian Shaw back uh, after that much downtime. I I don't question him sending him out there for the 10th. But the second Schwarber got the hit, yank him. He should have been yanked. You should have brought in a guy like Dan Otero, who's been your cleanup reliever comes in with bases low on all the time now I know he just gave up the grand slam in game six but I mean you got to look at, the, to- at the totality here I mean the guy has been so reliable he's the guy in that situation I would have brought him or anyone else in because when Schwarber got that hit you know Brian Shaw this year has been prone to just the bad inning and with all that downtime and everything that's when you say okay I got to go to my bullpen and clean this up right now, you know, before anything gets started. He had been so good at doing that. He had been yanking starters with like 50 pitches sometimes in this playoffs. I was stunned that Brian Shaw was allowed the the latitude that he had, and and that's the decision that I think was was the worst of the postseason for Terry Francona. And, and you said it best. I mean, every time he had a chance to step up, he stepped up. And, and, and you know, you can't overlook what a fine job he did. But at the end of the day, uh, that decision to stick with Shaw beyond that first hit, I, I think, ultimately cost the Indians the game. And, and had he pulled him, uh, it, it, we could be talking about a different outcome right now. Yeah, it's unfortunate that the rain played a factor because not only did it um, throw Shaw off his game, I think – the Cubs clearly reeling from blowing a three run lead in the eighth inning got time to go in the clubhouse together and rally. And I'm sure Joe Madden had some really uh, good things to say to them to get them back on track. And they look like a, a different team uh, than we saw in the, in the previous few innings in that 10th inning. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, they, as soon as Schwarber gave up that hit, which Kipnis was inches away from fielding. I mean, think about that for a second. Um, he, he should have been yanked and, and gone to Otero or, or Jeff Manship, somebody else uh, in that bullpen that that's certainly capable of managing just a one runner on, um, you know, that that's not uh, exactly, the, that's not the most stressful situation Otero or Manship have faced in, in the past. So yeah, I think that was pretty much the only uh, a knock on Francona other than the starter decision and, and, and letting Shaw pitch that 10th inning. Um, other than that, I thought he called a, a fantastic World Series. I also question yanking Coco Crisp. Uh, I, I did not like the defensive replacement. Um, I, I think you should have kept Crisp in the field and his bat in the lineup, so that way you're not stuck with um, Michael Martinez coming up 
with two outs in Game Seven, needing mm. him to get a hit. I, I questioned that decision because I th- I know I know what he was going for there, but why not just switch the right fielder with the left fielder if you're you're trying to get a bigger arm in the left and and hide Crisp in right field, and that way his bat's still in the lineup. So I do question that decision as well because he had nobody to pinch hit Martinez with, and he comes up two outs, needing to get a hit, and that's how the series ended. Yeah, very true. That that's a very good point. Uh, how mu- how much blame are you putting on Brian Shaw though himself? I mean, allowing two runs in that tenth inning and implosion. Uh, this is the second extra inning game seven World Series. A, a top reliever for the Tribe has has blown. Uh, are are you making any Jose Mesa comparison? No, because Brian Shaw never had the lead. Jose Mesa had the lead, and Jose Mesa is a much better reliever than Brian Shaw. I mean, look, I'm not saying Brian Shaw is a bad reliever. But when you give a closer like Jose Mesa the ball with a one-run lead in Game 7 of the World Series, you expect the door to be shut. You know, Brian Shaw is, at best, their third-best reliever. You know, it's not like it was Cody Allen or Andrew Miller in this situation. Um, and I do think that I, I am beating this rain-played-a-factor argument to death because I don't think it did other than Brian Shaw was thrown off. But that's on Terry Francona to get him out of there after the first hit is given up. I don't believe that the Cubs or the Indians gained any momentum from that rain delay because after the eighth, the Indians went one, two, three in the ninth. The momentum was killed there. Okay, if the rain delay happened after the eighth and the Cubs rallied in the ninth, I'd buy the argument a little bit more. The only thing I think the rain delay did was was make Shaw wait around a little too long and then develop a little bit of rust. So that's why I criticized this decision so much because I think after that hit, Terry Francona should realize, oh man, my reliever's been sitting around for 17 minutes plus the bottom on the ninth where we hit. Uh, I think I should probably go to someone else to clean up this mess and make sure it doesn't get out of control. That's, I think, the extent yeah. of the rain factor. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, obviously the, the biggest part of the rain delay was Brian Shaw tried to pitch after that and clearly he wasn't the same pitcher. Um, back to the Jose Mesa comparison, I agree with you. I mean, Shaw, clearly the third best pitcher on, on this Indians team. Jose Mesa was the best reliever. In, uh, the Indians had one of the best relievers in the game at, at that point. Um, certainly expect him to close that out. So, um, yeah, that's not a fair comparison to Brian Shaw, though. I mean, didn't give up two runs in the 10th inning of the World Series. So uh, I'm sure he's not feeling too good. Uh, one of those RBIs was an RBI double to Ben Zobris. Uh, again, a ball that, you know, just a few inches here or there might have gotten fielded by somebody in that infield. Uh, he won the MVP. Uh, Chris, do you agree with that decision? Why not? He had the big hit that ultimately helped him win the game. I don't have a strong feeling about the World Series MVP because ultimately I, I really don't think anyone on the Cubs distanced themselves in the way that some of the guys on the Indians did. You know, if the Indians had won that game seven, Kluber probably pitches well, no doubt. He's the MVP. You know, you could have made an argument for Rajay Davis's three-run home run too, uh, putting himself in that conversation. Though I would have had a little bit of a problem with that given what he did the whole series compared to Kluber. Um, but it's not like Zobris was a bad player throughout the series he had respectable numbers and he had a huge moment and like we said on last week's podcast when we talked about who might win the MVP 
we had both said that the moments for the Cubs were still to come, and this clearly was the signature moment. So I have no problem giving it to him. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his stat line, it's not exactly all that inspiring. A 357 batting average and only two RBIs. Um, but compared to the rest of the Cubs, Zobrist was the only guy that consistently got on base and got hits. Um, so that, that definitely makes sense. I'm surprised John Lester with two starts and uh, a late inning appearance in Game 7 I, I didn't take that award, but again, I, I get why Ben Zobris won it, due in part because you know even in the game seven, eight different Cubs drove in a run. Uh, nobody had two RBIs uh, in that game, so the offense was definitely spread around. Uh, they had to get it to somebody. Why not give it to the guy that uh, scored the the winning run for for the Cubs and, and broke their curse? I would have argued Arietta over Lester just because Arietta won two starts and Lester lost his game one start. Yeah, I, I could see that as well. Um, but again, I mean, it's I do think the MVP candidates were on the Indians. They just lost the series. You know, the clear MVP candidates were on the Indians. More people, there were more yeah. individual guys that you could single out than on the Cubs. Yeah, definitely. I, I think. Uh, Kluber, Miller, Rajay Davis, who uh, even added RBI in that 10th inning as well. Um, even, possibly Jason Kipnis. Is, I mean, yeah, they were Indians were relying on a much smaller pool of, of players to carry them than the Cubs, which is, uh, did did it pretty much by, by a huge team effort. I mean, everybody uh, on that team contributed to their win. All right, Bob. So, um, yeah, I got, I, got, I got something to say because uh, now, now – one of the things that I was most angry at about Game 7 was how I felt Chicago Cubs fans ripped home field advantage away. Uh, the fans were loud, but the Cubs fans were drowning Tribe fans out for most of the game, save for that eighth inning where Davis hit the home run. Then it was crazy. But I was really really irked at how many Cubs fans were in the stadium you know and you could see the Cub blue everywhere you could see fans just just kind of invaded the Indians ballpark and this is game seven of the World Series and it's on the heels of the fan base really not supporting this team at all at the ticket booth you know not even drawing 20,000 a game for a team that won the division went to the world series and it's not like they weren't didn't you know just win the division on the last day they led since mid-june ever since that 14 game winning streak i was very disappointed in tribe fans and and it just made me kind of you know irked at just cleveland in general that we kind of allowed the cubs fans to do this to show that they were more passionate about their team than we were on the game's biggest stage and i i think that was what hurt the most about the loss walking back from the stadium was that there were tons of Cub fans there celebrating on our field. Now, I get it. Look, man, you and I were at that game six where the Warriors celebrated. There were Warriors fans there, but but not nearly as many as Cubs fans were at for this one. Yeah, I, I'm hesitant to uh, equate fan passion with uh, – financial ability because some of those ticket prices were insane and i'm sure a lot of those ticket prices were being purchased by cubs fans uh just because of the huge fan base that they have the and the the 
the monument of, of that game, I, I'm sure that there were much more Cubs fans willing to spend a huge amount of dollars to go to that World Series game. Um, so I, I, I feel hesitant to, to blame Indians fans for, for not showing up to that game or for even selling their tickets to a Cubs fan when a, you know you could get $10,000 from it. I mean, that, that that's really hard for me to, to, to uh, talk down to, to anyone about. And, and secondly, when you don't have the lead for the entire game, it's really hard to, to, out, to drown out even the visiting crowd. Um, I understand you were there and that uh, you have more perspective on it, but um, I, I think it would be a much different story, say, the Indians led for, for a little bit or if they took the lead or if they got the lead back at some point uh, as opposed to uh, the Cubs from the leadoff hitter hitting the home run. I mean, that just enabled Cubs fans and, and really probably rejected uh, or left a lot of the Indians fans dejected in that stadium. And it, it was probably difficult for them to to uh, out cheer uh, that huge Cubs contingent. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I understand the financial argument, and I understand that they didn't lead the whole game. I get it. But to me, it's like, why don't we ever talk about this with the Browns or the Cavs? Why does this never come up with those? Why Why is it we can sell out a Lake Erie Monsters Calder Cup deciding game and have an amazing environment? Because I was at that one, too. I'm just saying, like, it's only the Indians yeah. where the economics argument comes up. You know, like, I don't hear anyone complaining about Cavs tickets prices or, and there's 81, you know, there's 80, well, not 82. I don't think, 41 I don't think anyone, games. I don't think anyone makes the argument regular season that the Indians games are too expensive. I, I just think that there were people that had World Series tickets that, we're getting offered prices that that you would be a fool not to take them up on. I also think Chicago being so close, being such an easy drive, uh, Chicago and Cleveland uh, having lots of transplants to and from both cities. I, I'm sure that Cleveland has one of the larger Chicago Cubs fan bases just because of its proximity, as opposed to say playing Golden State. Uh, in the NBA Finals, it's a lot harder to get to Cleveland from San Francisco than it is to just hop on the highway and you're in, you're in Cleveland after a day's drive. Yeah, but I mean, the tickets are. All I'm saying here is the tickets prices for these marquee events are are still in the premium, expensive price range. And I guess what I'm saying here is, Cavs fans don't have a problem showing up for the game. Why why can't the Indians fans show up? You know, where are our big spenders for the Indians tickets? You know, why are we letting Cubs fans come in here and rule our house? That's all I'm saying. And I get it. Look, Bob, I get it. You're making valid points. But nobody brings these points up for the Cavs or the Browns. It's only the Indians. Why why are the economics only the Indians thing? You know, I I just, it, it really disappoints me. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's very frustrating. You know, watching the game, I heard cheers every time they scored. It's not, it's not fun to watch. They gave John <laughs> Lester a standing you know ovation. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I was not happy, and and this this would be the part of the podcast that um, I'm very thankful we weren't recording the day after. Let's just say that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can only imagine how you how you're feeling, what you would say. Um, I've been. Uh, 
witness to some of those rants before so let's just say um, donald trump had his twitter taken away i'm not saying it's that bad but thank goodness my mic was taken away on thursday <laughs> yeah all right chris well uh man very sad result but i think a lot of people walked away really positive about this indians team i mean it really hurts that you blew a 3-1 lead but the Indians got to a three one lead in the World Series, uh despite all circumstances working against them to get into that position. Uh if you look at their their contracts, there's not a lot of guys hitting the free agency market. They have a lot of guys locked up long term on this team. The future is bright for, for the Indians and, and definitely for the Cubs as well. Uh what what's just your quick uh outlook for, for the success of these teams uh in the twenty seventeen season? Yeah, it, it's tough. It's always tough to project because, you know, I, I'm switching sports here, um, but bear with me for a second. When the Green Bay Packers won their Super Bowl over the Pittsburgh Steelers back in 2010, everyone was saying this would be the next great dynasty in the NFL. I mean, they were young all over the roster. They had a good defense, a great offense, and everyone was saying this is just the beginning. They have yet to get back to the Super Bowl. And so I would caution both teams that, you know, just because you're young, just because you have a lot of young guys locked up, it doesn't necessarily mean you're ever going to get back in this position. I mean, in 2007, you know, Indians fans thought, hey, Cliff Lee's coming back. Now, I don't think anyone expected Cliff Lee to win the, uh, you know, bajillion games he won in 2008, but but we were getting another pitcher back to go with CC Sabathia. That team only won 81 games and traded CC Sabathia at the end of July. And so I'm not trying to be pessimistic here. I guess I'm cautioning that, yeah, it looks great. A lot of this youth looks great, but it doesn't mean you're ever going to get back here. Now, I do think the future does look bright for both teams. Obviously, the Cubs, with their big market spending and a young nucleus, are well positioned. I think the Indians are strategically positioned as well. They are going to have more critical decisions than the Cubs do because of their financial constraints. And the Indians broke out this year. The Cubs kind of broke out the year before. So some of these guys that the Cubs are relying on, these young guys, have done it for two years, where guys like you know Ramirez and uh, Naquin and some of these other you know young guys are just kind of finding their footing in the league. You know Carlos Santana has had his career year. Is this a one-year thing, or can we rely on these guys for the long term? Is Michael Brantley going to come back healthy? Will Carlos Carrasco or Daly Salazar have any setbacks? Because let's not forget, this isn't the first time they've struggled with injuries. You know, they've had injuries prior to 2015. So there are a lot, I think there are more questions around the Indians than the Cubs just because of the nature of economics. I do think both have the potential to get back to the World Series. But I also think that uh, if, if I'm picking one of the two, I would say the Cubs are in better position because you saw they were a deeper team. They have young guys who are a little more seasoned and they have the economics to buy their way out of problems. Yeah, I, th- I think the future looks bright f- for both teams for sure. Um, the good news, I-, I guess I'll start with the Indians. I mean, I, there are a couple of good things working for them. You know, Brantley and Gomes, you're hoping that they come back healthy and, and can start this season right. Uh, Salazar pitched in the World Series and he looked pretty good. So he looks like he, he'll be ready in the spring. And then the injury that happened to Carlos Carrasco uh, a line drive off the off of a hand to fracture your hand that's not really a I mean yes that is part of your pitching motion and everything but that's not an injury due to pitching so I think that 
you know, they have, they're getting those guys back and they ex- can reasonably expect that they will contribute uh, in the ways that they've contributed before. So I think internally they're already expecting a boost, which is great. Um, yeah, they have some key decisions to make that we'll talk about in, in just a second. Um, on the flip side, the Cubs, uh, nobody in the National League had more plate appearances by batters under the age of 25 than the Cubs, which is crazy to think about that they just won the World Series with that group that young. And, you know, Anthony Rizzo doesn't even count in that he's 26. Um, but what doesn't get talked about with the Cubs is that Uh, On the flip side, their starting rotation was the second oldest in the National League. Uh, They have four pitchers north of 30 in their starting rotation. Kyle Hendricks is the only one there, had a career year, uh, but he throws an 89-mile-per-hour fastball. And if you look at the offseason free agent market, there really isn't – the the pickings for a starting pitcher are very slim. So uh, as we saw with the Indians, starting pitching, it can – go away in a second or as we saw with the new york mets or the kansas city royals last year so yeah the future looks brighter for the cubs because they have more guys locked up long term and like you said they have a lot more money to spend to buy their way out Uh, but that starting rotation you have to start to wonder uh guys might start breaking down you know john lester's getting uh i think he'll be 33 next year jake ariette is north of 30 uh john lackey and jason hamels are are dinosaurs at this point so uh, that is a weakness that 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 might uh, ruin a Cubs season, maybe in 2017 or 2018. So we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, you know both teams look like they they are poised to to have uh, future success success for sure. Um, the Indians do have more decisions to make uh, more immediately. Uh, they declined to offer qualifying. Uh, offers to Rajay Davis and Mike Napoli that they, they declined Coco Crisp's uh, extension and did not uh, grant him a qualifying offer. They did extend Carlos Santana and picked up his option. They picked up Terry Francona's two options for, for later, uh, all the way up to 2020, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, Chris, uh, any interest in bringing any of those veterans back? Uh, all those moves were, were smart and predictable. I was a little surprised Napoli didn't get a qualifying offer because I thought he'd be a lock to turn it down given that he hit uh, you know, 30-plus home runs and probably would be seeking more than just a one-year deal. Now, I know that offer's worth about $17 million, but that way if you can't get a deal yeah. done <laughs> with Napoli, uh, you at least get a draft pick out of it. And if you do, you don't lose a draft pick under the rules. So I didn't see – I don't think that there was much risk offering him there. But but obviously the front office people would have a better uh, sense of what's going on there than I would. Uh, but that, that kind of raised eyebrows for me. But other than that, uh, all the moves were pretty predictable. And, and uh, you know, I, I have no problem with, with them. Yeah, me neither. I, I do think that the, the front office or there might be a mutual understanding – or the front office thinks that they could get Napoli back at a discount because he liked playing for Cleveland and for Terry Francona so much, but he might be poised for a huge paycheck that might be hard to turn up. Yeah, and and I still think even if he signs a deal, it's not going to be for one year, and, and that's the key to the qualifying offer. It's a really big paycheck, but it's only one year, and so I, that's why I felt that Napoli wouldn't accept it. You know what I mean? Like I don't think that... 
that sure. there was much risk there. So why not just secure it just in case he gets a boatload of money? I mean, heck, we just saw Ubaldo Jimenez a few years back leave the Indians and get four years, $48 million, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, this is a terrible contract. So uh, let's not sit here and pretend there aren't a bunch of teams that are desperate for good players. Um, I do think Napoli is going to have some offers. Yeah, I, I do too. Uh, we will definitely uh, keep you guys posted on, on Indians offseason moves as, as we move forward. Chris, uh, closing out the 2016 MLB season, any last thoughts? I mean, ultimately, it was a fun year. Get to the World Series, ended in heartbreak, but at the end of the day, there were 28 other teams that didn't get to play in a very, very strong series. Uh, I thought it was very entertaining, If you, especially if you didn't have a team in the race, because then your heart probably uh, has a few more years left on it. But um you know, at the end of the day, uh, you you can't complain about a trip to the World Series. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can't. I I would feel terrible asking more out of this Indians team. Uh, they were one run away though uh, from winning it, one game away from winning it. It, it. It's it's hard to swallow, but when you think about everything they've been through, the odds were against them just about every step of the way. Uh, it's hard not to get proud and be happy for for what this team accomplished and hopefully it's a it's a thing a sign of more wins and more joy to come so uh hopefully 2017 will be even even better for, for the cleveland indians um but we will have to switch gears right now uh talk some college football uh some good news for all the ohio state fans that listen to the podcast i mean uh how could you not be happy with a 62 to three beat down uh against the nebraska cornhuskers uh chris i i guess this is a this is a, such a statement was made that now you have to question is how good was actually nebraska yeah really i mean you look at the way the buckeyes were playing going into this game struggling to the likes i mean they lost to penn state struggling against indiana and northwestern uh, you got to scratch your head about Nebraska just a little bit uh, because now, 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 truth be told, their, their starting quarterback had a very scary injury during that game, but the game was already out of hand when that happened. I mean, Ohio State dominated from start to finish. This was the, the beatdown of the year, bigger than that Oklahoma beatdown. Uh, so I, I questioned Nebraska a little bit because their big signature non-conference win is Oregon, who... They're not the Oregon they were even last year, let alone two years ago. So I'm skeptical in Nebraska. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that they're a top – maybe maybe they're a top 20 team, not necessarily a top 10 team, if that makes sense. No, yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. Uh, that does make sense. Yeah, once Tommy Armstrong went out, I mean, it, it was on. Uh, Nebraska – I didn't, you and I both didn't really think that Nebraska had much of a shot against Ohio State. Um, losing your best player on, on offense, your, your leader and your quarterback, I mean, the route was on at that point. So um, I, I feel a little bad for them and how it turned out, uh, how much they just got schlacked across the field. But um, yeah, definitely definitely a, a, a much better showing from Ohio State than, than uh, the previous few games. So uh, could be a sign of things to come. And again, uh, one more hurdle as we get ready for an Ohio State-Michigan showdown, which looks to be uh, quite quite the epic clash at the end of the year. Certainly, uh, yeah. Ohio State-Michigan looks nearly inevitable. Um, Ohio State, I believe, just has Maryland and Michigan State. 
leading up to that, and Michigan's schedule is not much tougher. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's looking like that's going to be the throwdown. But if Michigan were to stumble, Penn State actually would be uh, huge Buckeyes fans in that game because Ohio State could knock Michigan out and then open the door for Penn State to win the division. So the Big Ten East could get a little interesting if the Wolverines stumble. And the Big Ten West, as I mentioned last week, Minnesota still controls its own destiny. Three teams that tied at two losses. Uh, Minnesota plays both Nebraska and Wisconsin. Now, I'm not going to bet on that happening. I'm just saying, though, the Gophers could be in the Big Ten Championship. Very interesting uh, to see how that all plays out for sure. Um, all right, well, let's zoom out real quick. Uh, any other thing that, that surprised you from from uh, this past weekend? I was surprised Baylor got destroyed by TCU. <laughs> that that just, I mean, yeah. those Big 12 teams are starting to crumble a little bit. Um, Oklahoma State is quietly 5-1 and run, one and in the hunt for the Big 12 title. And don't forget that Central Michigan game uh, could be a bigger factor than we thought. Um, and then yeah. the other thing that really shocked me was first college football playoff rankings. I know Washington didn't play a very tough non-conference schedule, but we're going to have Texas A&M ranked ahead of them. I- I- I'm sorry. I-, I completely disagreed with that. It doesn't matter because A&M lost, but that was wrong. Yeah, it was definitely questionable. Um, you know, with the first ranking, I, I didn't think too much of it because there's still plenty of football to play. And we just had to wait one week for that decision to be made for the committee uh, when A&M lost to Mississippi State. So um, I think all will be right with the college playoff ranking and we'll have four undefeated teams in that top four. I, I, uh, I think the committee just says, hey, it's the first ranking. We can correct it. Let's do something that gets people talking. Because that one year they put three SEC teams in the playoffs and nobody thought that was going to hold up. I think, look, I don't want to accuse them of anything, but I think they might just be like, you know what? Let's just give people something to talk about. I don't know. Yeah. No, I I, I could see that as well. And then uh, we had the annual matchup, uh, old school matchup between Alabama and LSU was tied 0-0 at halftime. I don't think Alabama scored the touchdown until late in the third quarter, I think, ended up winning 10 to nothing. Uh Chris, did you watch that game? Was did you consider that a fun game to watch? I did. I watched a lot of it. I started watching that when Ohio State got out of hand. It was a fun game. I like slugfests like this. Uh, a little. Who said you can't play Big Ten football in the SEC? These two teams play it all the time when they get together. Uh, it's fun, and, and you know I know people like the scoring, but games like that are actually a lot more fun to me than the uh, 63-56 shootouts where it's like you're playing a video game. Uh, I, I like it when. The, the tension when it was 0-0, it's like, man, the first team to score is just going to be like overwhelmed. It'll feel a lot more than seven points. So I, I liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, Alabama just uh, proven again why it's the best team in the nation. Yeah. Jalen Hurts had uh, that touchdown run. was pretty special. Yeah. That's uh, good. All right. Well, let's shift over to Sunday. Uh, Browns. uh, uh saw what a, a real team looks like in the in the Dallas Cowboys and <laughs> uh didn't didn't uh play out too well for them um another poor showing by, by Cleveland they went with uh Cody Kessler in that game who uh went up against a fellow rookie in, in Dak Prescott got outplayed I mean the Browns got outplayed at, at every level uh, of this game what, what, what were your thoughts from that I can't believe that 
anyone would think Cody Kessler is a better prospect than Dak Prescott. Now, now, granted, when Dak Prescott got drafted, I I didn't think he'd be this good. But I'm thinking to myself, why is this guy the eighth quarterback taken? Because, Bob, I mean, you saw him play in the SEC. He was a very good quarterback in the SEC. And, and I, I didn't – I was stunned to see him fall as far as he did. Um, and I understand that the differences between the teams is, is just staggering um, with regards to the talent around them. So I don't think it's fair to Cody Kessler to just – you know, hold him to that comparison. But Dak Prescott's the he looks like the real deal. Now I know it's early in his career. I know it's only been about a half a season. But man, this guy's a beast. And and Ezekiel Elliott mixed with that offensive line is just the one of the scariest combinations in all of football. He must have just been like, oh man, I'm gonna eat some yards today or seeing that run defense that's historically terrible. And he did. Uh the the fact of the matter is this is like when the Browns paid, played the Patriots. The the Cowboys are like four weight classes above the Browns right now. Um, we're going to see another repeat of this game in a couple weeks when the Steelers play the Browns. Uh, it's just going to be like that for most of the rest of the year when the Browns play these teams that are just aspiring for championships while the Browns are just trying to figure out how to get off the ground. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's fair to compare Dak to, to Cody Kessler in that game, in that moment. Um you know, you look at the touchdown throws that Dak Prescott had two, two touchdowns to wide open targets. I mean, not even a person close to them. Uh, Jason Witten's was the one I considered him marginally covered, but even he was pretty much wide open. And and if you look really at the, at the pocket that Dak Prescott had for all three of those throws, not a single defensive lineman anywhere near him. Uh, if he were on the Browns, I mean, he would just get eaten alive, just like Cody Kessler. Yeah, is. he'd be out by week um, three. Yeah, uh, so I don't think that's a fair comparison. But I mean, look what Dak Prescott can do on a functional team. Uh, how I I can't imagine Cody Kessler doing any better or performing that way in that situation. Though he he would certainly be a lot better than than what he is uh, on this Browns team. I, I I just I you know this Browns team is so bad. There's no, there's no way that uh, any quarterback that goes under there is performing at their peak level uh, with that offensive line, with that lack of a run game uh, inconsistency in, in the, in the passing game uh, and just a terrible defense to give you terrible field position. And it's just a lose, lose a, a terrible situation for any quarterback. Yet people in our pick em, Bob are still picking the Browns. I can proudly say I have yeah. nine wins. Uh, just by doing the smart thing. Uh, hey, I'm not complaining, though. If you're listening to this podcast, you guys know who you are. Keep picking the Browns because uh, I need to make up some ground. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, midseason. Uh, let's look at the National Football League and the standings. And uh, it's uh, kind of a mess <laughs> if you if you look at it. Chris, who, who, who are the favorites in the AFC and the NFC? Well, can we say uh, tuck rule rematch? Patriots and Raiders? clearly distancing themselves a little bit especially with Oakland's win Sunday night football against Denver a very gutsy performance against a good defense that AFC West is stacked by the way seven and two six and two six and three and then the Chargers in last place at four and five Uh, I think it's safe to say if the Chargers got to play in some of these easier divisions they might be flirting with the wild card too so uh very tough division there um but everyone else in the AFC is just mediocre uh beyond I think Oakland and New England um, and then if we switch to the NFC, uh, Atlanta finally, you know, showing 
to their potential. We saw the Cowboys. I would say those two have distanced themselves. It's weird to see all these ties in the standings. I don't like that. You got four teams with ties. Uh, the Vikings have certainly, uh, they started off 5-0, and now they've lost three. So uh, maybe the uh, injuries are starting to catch up there. But uh, if, if you ask me to pick the front runners, I would say Raiders and Patriots on the AFC and uh, Cowboys and Falcons in the NFC. I know, I know it's just pretty much looking at the standings, but those are the teams that have uh, definitely jumped out. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Uh, the Raiders cannot uh, cannot play any defense. They're hemorrhaging points. So uh, I, I think it's just, it's the Patriots and, and no one else in that AFC. Uh, the NFC, I think, uh, is, a, is a little more down to earth. I don't think the Cowboys are head and shoulders above everyone else, though their record says otherwise. I have to consider them a favorite, though, because they're 7-1. I, I do think that the Seahawks are, are getting better and their defense is really playing, but they did lose uh, their previous game, so it's hard for me to pick them. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think in the NFC, you really just have Atlanta and Dallas and then the rest of the field. Pretty cut and dry. Well, if the Cleveland Cavs were in the NFL, they'd be 6-0, and Bob. They'd be undefeated. They'd be sitting on top of one of these divisions. Yeah. They'd also be about yeah. uh, like 18 players short of, of a team. Yeah, and probably a couple thousand pounds in, in terms of line <laughs> beef, <laughs> though they do have some big guys. Uh, yeah, six and zero almost blew that game against Philly. Uh, they've gotten out to huge leads and have kind of coasted and let the teams back in. But um, I mean, no complaints from from me uh, for for the results so far. Yeah, I mean, you, you, obviously the the Cavs are not going to go undefeated. They are going to take more games off. But uh, Joel Embiid impressed me because I actually did watch that Philadelphia game. Um, or at least a, a lot of it, or at least the last quarter. Uh, yeah, I, I like how I went from the whole game to a lot to the last quarter there. Um, yeah. but, but Joel Embiid, now that he's healthy, uh, definitely um, showing why he was picked number three overall. I know I've made fun of the 76ers in the past, but Embiid has uh, definitely so far uh, impressed me. Yeah, I like how he's embracing the nickname The Process. Like he's insisting that people call him that. <laughs> I think it's really funny. <laughs> he is kind of a um, funny yeah, guy. He, like on Twitter, he jabbed LeBron yeah. James a little bit. So he he's a he has a personality. Yeah, for sure. Um, he, he definitely played well and has been playing well at the start of the season. Unfortunately, uh, there's nobody around him <laughs> that can play well. Uh, Julio Okafor didn't play that game. Uh, ben Simmons obviously hurt. Uh, I didn't, it was Nerlens Noel wasn't playing in that game either. I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think he was. I didn't really see him. Um, like I said, it was it was it was a crazy yeah. night. I was flipping between a lot of stuff, college and seventy sixers, Cavs, yeah. and all that fun stuff. So, and plus, it's the sixth game in the NBA season. I'm not exactly in less yeah. focus, hardcore mode. But uh, Ben Simmons yeah. is the big one. If he can come back healthy with Embiid, uh, that could be a pretty good combo. Yeah, for sure. Um, we did pass up one of the major NBA temples, uh, Westbrook versus Durant round one, not as hostile cause it was in golden state. Um, have a chance to catch any of that. The Warriors ended up blowing the thunder out. No, I didn't, uh, didn't, didn't get to catch any of it, but, uh, you know, I mean the, the thunder have a good record right now, but I, I'm not too sold on them because I think as the year goes on, they're just going to be a little too shorthanded. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, going to agree with you on that one and i'll definitely tune in when durant goes to oklahoma i think that's going to be much more entertaining than uh westbrook and, and golden state yeah i would agree but, with that big time uh i think durant's yeah. going to hear some boo birds yeah for sure but. all righty man well 
Indians lost, but the podcast must go on. Sadly, baseball is over. The ride is over. But plenty more sports to talk about next week. We'll still have the Browns as much as we wish we didn't. And still have the Buckeyes and still have the Cavs and, and all that fun stuff. So come back next week for another episode of Clee Talk. Until then, you can uh, check us out at FinleyRoadSports.com. You can click that iTunes icon in the corner and subscribe to our podcast. Or you can search Finley Road Sports. Look for Clee Talk in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Fenley Road Sports or Instagram at Fenley Road Sports. And uh, we will certainly uh, tweet out when we have our podcast posted. And, uh, yeah, come back to the site, listen, subscribe. And, of course, come back later this week, not on Friday, because the Browns play on Thursday. So our Football Fridays edition will be a little early this week uh, just to get it out before kickoff. Browns and Ravens will break that down there as well. But until then... I can't say go tribe anymore, man. I got to think of something else. Go go Browns. Get a win. All right. Yeah. So for win number one for them. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.